Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The markets are rattled about a trade war with China. We'll think about how to minimize the damage for U.S. business. The first British film to deal with homosexuality almost ruined the career of its lead actor. We'll recall the lessons of the victim. And getting the challenge of getting good food to everyone, we'll explore the motivations of the Good Food Expo. Don't forget, you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. Yesterday, President Trump took aim at China on intellectual property theft and the trade imbalance. We're going to be doing a Section 301 trade action. It could be about $60 billion, but that's really just a fraction of what we're talking about. The word that I want to use is reciprocal. When they charge 25 percent for a car to go in, And we charge 2% for their car to come into the United States. That's not good. That's President Trump yesterday talking about trade with China. We're going to pull apart what's happening between the U.S. and China with writer Ted Fishman. Ted, it's good to see you. Great to be here. All right. Are we officially in a trade war with China? We've had uh, uh, tariffs on aluminum and steel. China has responded. They responded yesterday. We've got this new situation with intellectual property, and the, the China's going to respond to that. Uh, we're, having, uh, we're having a back and forth. It's a trade war. Yeah, there's a heated conversation here. First, let's count our blessings that it's only looks like a trade war and not any other kind of war, <laughs> given the current climate and who's moving in and out of the administration. Um, I don't see a trade war yet. Uh, there's uh, lag time on some of these decisions. Even you know, the steel and aluminum tariffs are going to start today, supposedly. That's 25 percent on steel, 10 percent on aluminum. Uh, that looked really scary when it was announced. It was going to be a blanket tariff on the whole world and and anybody who sends us now we've basically exempted all of our biggest trading partners in those two metals and what's left is China and they're only they only account for two percent of our trade in those metals. Now what did that say to you, this hysterical announcement then we scaled back almost, you know, three quarters of the people we said we were going to impose this on? Uh, it sounds like the Trump administration does not know what it's doing. Uh I think there's a impulsive element in the policy here, you know, that that Donald Trump is very committed to keeping his campaign promises to his base, which I, th- I, I think that's admirable. Keeping campaign promises is a good thing. Um, but he seems to come to the determination to keep the promise and, and, and sketch out a, a, a sort of very loose plan on how to do it pretty impulsively and everybody has to pay, play catch up. And you, and you saw that with the departures from the White House over the trade issue. Um, it, also, you know, maybe that maybe that was a cheap way to make this mistake because we made the mistake with our allies, and uh, as we go 
up against a much fiercer trade competitor, um, I, hopefully they've learned the lesson that more planning is in order. Ted, about a dozen years ago, you wrote a book called China, Inc., and you went after China on intellectual property pretty in a pretty detailed way. They, they'd steal almost everything. And this was a dozen years ago. Uh, they, uh, they deserve something on intellectual property, I guess. But um, we, the U.S. has never been able to deliver anything. Well, I have to thank the Chinese people and the Chinese government for making everything I said in that book come true. <laughs> <laughs> um, the way I characterized it then and it's even more true today was that you know the, the failure of the Chinese government – to enforce international norms on intellectual property to pr protect trademarks, copyrights, patents, to um, refrain from massive cyber attacks which steal other countries' technology. <laughs> that is the largest industrial subsidy in the world. You know, basically delivers the treasures of advanced economies, particularly the U.S. economy, to the industry of China at no cost. Give, the, give people an idea of what they're reverse engineering and the technology they're taking. Well, you name it. Um, China is now the biggest producer of, of mobile phones. Um, it uh, has always pushed the boundaries on uh, what mobile phone technology it's going to borrow and ask for later. They do pay license fees on lots of it, but there's those are the marquee companies that have come late to paying those fees, and there's a huge industry beneath them that does not pay those fees. Um, but it goes deeper than that. It's also the processes. It's taking a beautiful piece of machinery that works on an assembly line from the United States buying one of those for the full price, taking that machine to a Chinese manufacturer, having it made thousands of times and having that machine for 15 percent of the price. Um, and when you look at that dynamic, that the intellectual property is not just the false handbags, not just the fake perfume or T-shirts, but it is the copying of the way things are made and the machines that make the things deep inside the production process, you can see how intellectual property is essential to China's low-cost miracle. So they're reverse engineering stuff like motorcycles. Oh, they sure do. And that you know, they you know, some of those things that come out of China that look like absolutely legitimate products and we would regard them in every way as legitimate products are the result of Many, many layers of suppliers, you know, the hundreds of suppliers that create things that go into a motorcycle, that go into things in the cell phone that are not policed. And this is why this has been a naughty issue because we as American consumers who patronize American companies are insisting on lower and lower prices all of the time from the companies that drive down the prices of technology. And if – a big global company comes to its Chinese supplier and says every year we want you to lower your prices by 12 percent this year and next year and the year after. Uh, it's very tempting to steal intellectual property. And one of the knots that the Trump administration has to undo is the way that American industry is the partner in this intellectual property – in this very loose intellectual property regime. 
how do you mean that? We, we, we end up trading something, we give stuff to China, these businesses give stuff to China in exchange for market share. Well, that's a different dynamic and that's a really important one. What I'm saying is let's say you're a huge big box discount, uh, discount seller here and you have tens of thousands of companies in China that supply you. And you want your products to be lower in price for your customers year after year after year. When you meet – when your buyers go meet with those Chinese producers, yeah. they're telling them, OK, you got to lower your prices again 10 percent this year. And how are they going to do that? They're going to do it by stealing technology, not paying the license fee on software, having machines that they have no <laughs> legal right to run. Uh, and that's happens. You know, Microsoft has this great uh, statistic, which is the lowest price you can pay for a piece of Microsoft software legally in the United in the world is in Indonesia, where they pay seventeen dollars. Took a, Microsoft a lot of work to get that seventeen dollars. Wow! If China just paid that seventeen dollars on every operating system from Microsoft that it uses, Microsoft would make an extra hundred and fifty billion dollars. Yeah. <laughs> I mean that would that would pretty much that would go halfway to wiping out our trade deficit with China. I'm talking with Ted Fishman. He was the author of China Inc. about a dozen years ago. We've been talking about some of the details in there. But uh, what do you make of President Trump's uh, volley yesterday on this? Uh, how do you go after China on this in, in this issue that is so um, intractable? Kind of. Um, I think they're. Making the right kind of noises, you know, this is definitely an issue where you have to carry a big stick, uh, but you also need stick to itiveness. And as we said, that's really the problem here. Um, but I think there's some other things that are really interesting to think about. You know, we, the Trump administration has identified China as a strategic competitor. And in order to be a strategic competitor, you have to compete with the United States, not just in the magnitude of your military, but in the sophistication of your military. And if China gets the pearls of our high-tech technology, which is the key to our military leadership, then they become a much fiercer strategic competitor. Um, they're, they, they're not going to talk about that because they don't want to seem like they're losing technology. Uh, but you know, China can build off the shelf with the technology that it makes. Uh, a lot of things we've paid dearly to develop. All right. There's, so there's the military aspect that no one will talk about, <laughs> no one will hear about. Um, what, what, you know, a lot of people are looking at this and saying, well, what, how is China going to respond? And it's going to be in a way that is going to hurt U.S. businesses. And Boeing's stock went down enormously yesterday. The suppliers of Boeing went down enormously yesterday. Uh, what do we do with something like that? If, if Boeing gets hit, uh, is are we, are we, uh, you know, is Trump shooting U.S. businesses in the foot? Well, the first thing that interested me about that was it would be hard to find a policy decision that was telescoped more than this decision by the Trump administration. And everybody always says the stock market prices in things in advance of the news. There was no issue around which you had more opportunities to price in a policy than this and yet the world was still blindsided by it and we're going to continue to be blindsided by it because we don't know the game plan and the game plan has not been thoroughly laid out. They haven't identified the categories. They have a couple months for American industry to make its case on why its goods from China should be exempt or not and uh, as we've seen, the uh, industry can be very persuasive as they have been with steel and aluminum. Um, uh, but having said that, 
we've lost so many opportunities to um, use the tools we do have in order to change China's intellectual property regime that, you know, and we're going to lose them all unless we act now. So I, 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 I'm kind of cheering this on in the early days. Yeah. What, what are the tools that we have? Well, the tools we have are um, keeping goods out of the United States or putting a big tax on them if they're the result of intellectual property violation. You know, we do this for other products. If, if, if things come first cut, if they're first cut wood from the rainforest, we don't allow them in. If they're made with child labor, we don't allow them in. But if they're made on pirated machinery or with pirated software, um, we don't police them. And I, what I think the trade representative has done in his study, he's gone over and he says this is the category of goods that is made too competitive because of intellectual property uh, uh, practices. It's around fifty billion. They're going, they say they're going to put tariffs on sixty billion, which is ten dollars. I mean, uh, ten billion dollars more than the trade representative's recent report on intellectual property losses. Um, but. You know that there's a big cost to us, uh, and uh, they they want to recapture some of this cost uh, with a tax and retard the behavior. Is the Trump administration facing a retaliation that is uh, going to hit it politically? I was reading something uh, on from an analyst in China that said what the Chinese are going to do, and they've been drawing up their response to this for one year, is attack. President Trump, and you know, probably not with Boeing because they like getting Boeing planes, but they're going to attack him in red state areas with red state stuff, and they're going to make it hurt his base. With China, you always have to think of the multidimensional response they're going to have, and it's always going to be counterintuitive. So they're going to make a lot of noise, and they may go after these politically sensitive areas. They'll, the uh, Iowa is an important state for them; they need it on the Republican side. Uh, they're going to pick something in Ohio. They're going to pick something in Kansas. And uh, it won't cost them a lot. But China might be cheering on Trump's action because it suits other policy agendas in China. China for a long time has tried to get it off of the 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 fat of the industrial economy and move it into a service economy. If the tariffs on manufactured goods pushes China – deeper into a service economy, we are basically fulfilling their 10-year plan goals for them. <laughs> um, That's and, an interesting thought. Uh, you know, and there, there's, there's other things like that. And, you know, um, China may want to be a more aggressive trade competitor in Southeast Asia and other places, and they might be pushing their exports further in there. Um, and you might see a lot of dumping in other countries, which would make goods a lot cheaper in other places. You know, it's uh, it's it it it's it's going to be hard to map out the response. But I think that the Chinese will have a their response will surprise people because uh, I do think that in in a lot of important ways, Trump's agenda serves their agenda. One of the things that Paul Krugman wrote about this morning was the misplaced ideas that the Trump administration has about the trade deficit. And he said, well, when you've got a trade deficit with China, you are actually – you part of that trade deficit is all the suppliers that are, are 
sometimes our allies in Taiwan and Japan and South Korea, they're, they're all supplying parts to the stuff that ships to the United States. And if we want that trade deficit to go down, we want to hurt their economies. We want to hurt the economies of the allies, and the you know, Trump administration doesn't understand that. Boy, there's more misunderstandings about what these defi- trade deficits are than there are things that the public understands. And you know, there's this famous study in the Exhibit A for Krugman and people who talk uh, in his line is that products in the iPhone, which is made in China in a in a big factories in China, they come from all over the world. They cycle in and out. There's hundreds and hundreds of parts, some of which are made in stages inside and outside of China, some which are just plugged into the phone when they get to China, and. The Chinese economy only gets around 4% of the value of every iPhone, but Apple gets to make 40% margin on its $1,200 iPhone X. You know, so the U.S. is by far the big benefactor in that system. Um, but the other side, you know, there's another kind of trade. That's our current account, you know, the usual trade deficit. But we also have a capital account in which money comes to the United States and just stays here. And we have a like a... $30 trillion surplus in the capital account and that's people buying bonds, people buying real estate, people buying capital equipment to stay here and it's so huge. And if China gets poorer in its current account, it's going to send us less money in its capital – in our capital account. Uh, Ted Fishman, <laughs> <laughs> thanks for joining us and just muddying the waters for everybody. <laughs> so happy to do that. Ted Fishman is the author of China Inc. a dozen years ago where he was writing about intellectual property. Great to talk with you again. Thank you, Jerome. Well, yesterday, Donald Trump said that he's got a new national security advisor. His name is John Bolton. He is familiar to Fox listeners and watchers and viewers. He's on the TV there all the time. He has served previously in three uh, Republican administrations. You might have remembered him at the State Department when he was there on arms control issues. He was for military interdiction of North Korean ships on the seas. He was also the U.N. ambassador uh, for the United States for a spell. You might remember him uh, saying that a third of the United Nations could be taken right off the top and that wouldn't harm the uh, whole institution because it was so inefficient. And we have been talking about uh, what's been happening with the National Security Advisor realm on Worldview. We talked with Yoni Applebaum a week ago. He's the politics editor at The Atlantic. And here's what he had to say about John Bolton. Bolton is a guy who has long been metaphorically a bomb thrower. And and I think that there's some reason to wonder if if he may be about to become literally a, a bomb thrower. He is somebody whose instincts on foreign policy are, it's not just conservative versus liberal, it's uh, that he is deeply distrustful of international institutions and America's uh, participation in them, uh, tends to be skeptical of of diplomacy and, and to favor the use of force, and on a variety of issues where the president has apparently favored much more aggressive action and has been restrained by folks like McMaster, uh, who have tried to communicate to him some of the benefits of negotiation. Bolton seems much more likely to encourage the president to double down on his instincts. 
And that's Yoni Applebaum of The Atlantic talking about John Bolton, the man who has replaced H.R. McMaster as the National Security Advisor. We'll have more on that throughout the day here on WBEZ. Stay tuned. Uh, coming up after the break, we'll have our film contributor, Milo Stalik. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The Illinois primary is over, but there's still lots to sort out. So focus on facts while you consider the results. Listen to WBEZ for vote analysis and what comes next during All Things Considered at 3 on WBEZ 91.5. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald, and it's time for our film contributor, Milos Stalik from Facets. Nice to see you, Milos. Hey, Jerome. Great to be here. Milos, you've been doing something called teach-ins at Facets. What are you doing? For over a year, using film as a basis for discussion of democratic and civic issues, in a nutshell. Now, you've got a teach-in coming up, and we're going to talk about the the film and some of the issues around it. Right. This teach-in, which happens on next Monday, is called Why Are LBGTQ Rights Necessary? Uh, And Nick Davis, who uh, uh, teaches at Northwestern University in Gender Studies and English, is the guest with the film uh, The Victim, made in 1961, directed by Basil Dearden, which effectively changed the laws in Britain and also changed the career significantly for the film star. Um, so that's, the, that's, that's what we're showing. Nick Davis, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Thanks for having me. Uh, tell us a little bit about this film, The Victim. People may not be very familiar with it. It does not jump out as one of the classics in British cinema that everybody knows from that period. It doesn't, although within the history of LGBT cinema, it, it looms pretty large still. It was the first movie that ever used the word homosexuality in the script. It was uh, the first movie to sort of forthrightly take on the changing politics and public perceptions and, and dialogues about homosexuality after this government investigation called the Wolfenden Report in 1957, um, which people had sort of expected might uh, corroborate the hard line that police had still been taking on gay people in, in real life, but actually came out and said, we think this should be decriminalized. We think society's way behind the times. And this film kind of came together in direct response uh, to that trend in public opinion and trying to encourage more compassion. What's the general plot line of the film? Well, the film is both a thriller, you know, and an issue film in a way. It looks like kind of a noir thing. It's black and white and angles and dark shadows. It does look kind of noir, and it's not a style those those filmmakers had been using recently at that point. So they went back to a noir style to tell this story about a um, new barrister um, who is trying to avoid calls from a young kid who he seems to have probably had some kind of sexual tryst with, working class construction worker, um, thinks he's going to be blackmailed by that kid, only to find out that kid's trying to protect him from a blackmail ring that through him is is uh, trying to follow our lead character played by Dirk Bogard. And then you start realizing how many British men, it was illegal for men, not for women, um, by that point in British history, are all caught up in these blackmail snares that he decides to crusade against. Well, it was a very courageous role for Dirk Bogard to take on because Dirk Bogard was gay, and even though he was closeted, it never came out. But still, 
the role had been turned down by, by any number of actors before him, like James Mason, for example, was an actor who turned it down. And he took it on in a very forthright way and really created something which didn't help his career as a leading man, which he was by that time. Ranking matinee idol of the British screen throughout the 50s. So you know, what my students would think of as a reconnaissance is what he had with this role, kind of, you know, declaring his, his seriousness as an actor, as an artist, wanting to get behind projects that had something to say. How bad did this hurt his career? It, it, like, did he get not lead roles anymore? I mean, he well, it was it was interesting roles. because he didn't get lead roles in the traditional commercial sense, but in a way, it was also a liberating moment for him because, which he never regretted having taken this role because then it and he ended up in the films by Visconti, for example, Death in Venice, The Damned. I mean, he made films which were much more interesting in subject matter than this Doctor at Sea or Doctor at Large, all these British kind of standard commercial fair comedies. And some important, um, even commercial British directors at that point, Joseph Losey and John Schlesinger, mm-hmm. who made Darling with him four years after, mm-hmm. he started getting nominated for British Academy Awards and winning other kinds of global prizes. So it was a real turning point and he always described it as such. We're talking about the film The Victim. Milo Stelic is showing it at Facets on Monday and having a discussion afterwards. Why are LGBTQ rights necessary? Um, wh- how do you answer that? Begin to answer that question. How does the film help you discuss that? Well, you hope the question's rhetorical. You hope it's not being posed with a, a, a genuine <laughs> desire to hear an affirmation at this point. But um, to watch a story about somebody who's going to wind up relinquishing a fair amount of professional and social privilege to crusade about something he could just as easily be quiet about. It's interesting in the script mm-hmm. that he's not the one directly being blackmailed, that he kind of hears about it through these other channels that he's around. Um, and, and you know, we don't have to give away everything that happens in the story to say you watch him become more concerted about what he's willing to give up to make sure um, that people are protected and that um, that their lives can be treated with dignity and actually owned by themselves with some dignity. He decides to take a moral stand and, and to, 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 because of this boy's death, which happens very early in the film as a suicide in prison, uh, he decides to take a moral stand and go despite all of the risks that this entails for him, which is considerable. It also leads to a really interesting series of discussions with his wife, who married him knowing that his sexual affairs in college had been with men and with women, um, and how they're both responding to this sudden crisis that's in their parlor. Um, and there's, there's actually a lot more ambiguity in the film about what they're all saying than you sometimes read, even for people who think they may know the film, which is probably not most of the people listening. Um, there's quite a bit that Dirk Bogard's playing that's even deeper than the lines. And, um, and the, the actress who plays his wife, Sylvia Sims, who also took the part after many, many more famous women declined it, um, they really wanted to make this as complicated and difficult for these characters as possible rather than just being the kind of film that makes um, an appealing political point, but you feel like the film is just a vessel to make that point. It's it's exciting and it's complicated. How does it look today to the LGBTQ community when you would, when this movie's up there in the screen? You go, oh, I'm glad I don't have to give up so much, but I have to give up something. I think I'm giving up something all the time, but I'm not giving up that much anymore. Mm. Yeah, I wonder about that, especially I teach queer cinema courses at Northwestern. I work with students a lot who um, joined the Gay-Straight Alliance in their middle school, you know, at 12, (laughs) um, for whom this seems quite incredibly distant. Um, 
But, you know, there was a movie called uh, BPM Beats Per Minute that was sort of barely out in the fall about the about AIDS activism in France in the early 80s. Um, and I was kind of disappointed with the, the public response to that and the exhibitor support for that. I think there are a lot of stories about how hard we've had to fight to get where we arguably are now. Um, that it's worth commemorating that history. And not everything has been a step forward. You put victim up against the imitation game. This is a much more radical and sort of daring film at almost every level. Well, and you look at films like Imitation Game, in which in so many ways are really closeted about the gay Mm -hmm. issues still, the way they're represented. I mean, how safe they are. So you can look at victim and say it may, through today's eyes, it's a film that makes a lot of what would be compromises to the plot in today's uh, sphere, but at the same time, you have films being made today which are just as closeted in their own way. I mean, there's a story that just came out today, which I was talking to Nick about, about Dawson's Creek and the, how the director had to fight for the first on on-screen kiss between two men, being told always, well, you can't shoot it, you can only shoot it from a, across the street. I mean, all of these like ridiculous things. So, fifty plus years, we haven't come that far. I wonder how it. Does the victim uh, – I mean, I imagine it would could play as a more contemporary drama as, in a lot of places. If you show it in Uganda, uh, maybe it's, uh, a whole, it's a whole different story. Mm-hmm. Entirely possible. Um, and, and even just to take it as a drama, I mean, the, the, the homosexuality of it, although revealed pretty late into the movie, mm-hmm. it's about a third of the way into the script, is so central that you wouldn't say – well, it's not a film about that. It's about this. It is definitely a film about homosexuality, but but it is also a film about you know complicated negotiations within a community that sees itself as in danger. Um, the, there's a line in the script that says that 90% of blackmail cases in Britain by that point involved homosexuality to some degree or other. So the police are pretty practiced at this. Once they see a blackmail note, they are pretty sure they know what's up. There was a whole censorship wow. practice about that one line. Uh, the police didn't want them to say that. Um, but yes, you could go lots of places in the world and, and not just around the world, lots of places in the country. And this would still be quite relevant. And even the representation of the police is interesting because there are two policemen or uh, detectives who are in charge of this case. Uh, you know, and one of them tends to go for the ethical, moral uh, question no matter where it may lead, while the other one really reflects the community saying, you know, all homosexuals should be banned or imprisoned or whatever. And, and, and imprisonment was... The, the, the potential result of being declared a homosexual. Mm-hmm. And still is in lots of places. And maybe worth pointing out, too, that the team of three people, the producer, um, the director, and the screenwriter, Janet Green, had been collaborating on several films right in a row that each were trying to make a difference about social issues in relationship to this thriller genre. So they had come off a big hit with a film called Sapphire um, about a black woman passing as white in London who turns up murdered um, and having to figure out all the racial dynamics of who might be responsible for that murder. So they're, they're really good whodunits, these movies. But uh, this was a team that was wasn't just committed to one issue and really wanted to show a London that was changing really fast um, and maybe ready to start owning up to some of the entrenched power dynamics that were that were all around them. Uh, what do you think um, people will come come and want to discuss when they after they see this movie? They're going to want to ask what question. I think one thing that may happen is a sigh of relief that sometimes you go and watch these historically important movies and feel like they're not – they don't hold up as entertainment and this one definitely does. So I think there will be a lot of discussion just about did you think that was the person behind the plot? Did you <laughs> think this was going to go that way? But um, I think that, that it's um, – I think they'll have a lot of discussions about where was that society or those laws at that moment? How much is the film embellishing or how much is accurate? But 
Um, I think they may respond to just how huge a range of class positions the, the gay mm-hmm. characters in the film occupy. You see that to be involved um, in the gay kind of proto-community, in, in quote marks, um, could put you anywhere mm-hmm. in the culture. And just the sheer tour of London you get is pretty dazzling. Well, and, you, and unless you kind of reevaluate where film, Hollywood film for that matter, was and needs to be really re-examined in terms of the gay Hollywood, which always existed, but which had its own complex structure with stars who were who were gay, but who were also hidden. The kinds of uh, the kind of ways that uh, these issues or these images were represented through all of the classic Hollywood films, and then how long it took from the 1960s onward to really come to terms with anything that's kind of, that's realistic in terms of gay gay life. I think we may also talk about how there's a German film from the 19-teens that had almost exactly the same plot in many respects. So even this film was <laughs> what not... What film is that? It's called Different from the Others by Richard Oswald um, huh. with Conrad Veidt being blackmailed by a whole ring of people who are trying to extort money out of him or else they'll tell the whole world that this famous violinist um, is gay. Um, so we'll we'll talk about how new and important this film was but also how we do tend to reinvent the wheel over and over again. And... Uh, Nick Davis, it's been great meeting you. And uh, Milo Stalik, it's always great seeing you. Great to be here, Jerome. Thanks so much. And you can see Nick Davis uh, Monday at Facets, and they'll be talking about the film The Victim after showing it. And it's been very eye-opening and uh, great to talk about. Great to be here. See everybody Monday. Coming up after the break, we'll have Weekend Passport with Nari Safavi, where we let you know about a few good things happening this weekend. And this time, we'll let you know how to get good food. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for Weekend Passport here on WBEZ. It's where we let you know how to have an international good time on the weekend. Our global citizen, Nari Safavi, gives us a tour every week, and it's great to see you, Nari. Good day, Jerome. It's great to be here again. Tell us about a couple of good things. Where are we going? Yeah, a couple of things quickly to get started with. Uh, 1979 was a very revolutionary year, not only in politics, but also in the arts. And there will, there will be a talk at the MCA called 1979, a conversation inspired by Howardania Pindell. Uh, Hamza Walker, who used to be a big person, a curator over at the uh, over at the uh, Renaissance Society here in Chicago, has been on our segment several times. Uh, he is now a curator over a director at the Lax Art LAX uh, uh, Art uh, Institution. Uh, he will be joined uh, uh, by uh, by uh, somebody else, Naomi, Naomi Beckwith Beck. of the MCA. Yeah, and they'll be talking about the art of 1979. It will be an interesting thing to check out.
And that's at the Museum of Contemporary Art, and that's uh, Friday night here at 6. So check that out this evening if you dare. And do you have another thing for yeah, us? There's another thing. The opening reception of Arte Diseño Chicago, and Chicago is a sp- is spelled with an X instead of the C-H, kind of doing a Mexican sort of a thing uh, with the, replacing the, the letters with an X uh, kind of a thing. Uh, and it's an exhibition going on uh, today, opening, uh, opening night is tonight. Uh, Friday, March 23rd at 6 p.m. at the National Museum of Mexican Art in Pilsen. All right. That sounds like it's always interesting stuff at the National Museum of Mexican Art. Exactly. There's sort of a design approach, uh, design with a Latin approach kind of a thing that was based in Chicago uh, going on covering the history of that. All right, our featured item this weekend, and uh, it's going on all weekend, is the Good Food Expo, and uh, that's always a lot of fun. That is always a lot of fun. That's one of my favorite events in the year uh, going on, and uh, and my uh, my friend and social entrepreneur par excellence, Jim Slama, is the founder of that. He's done a lot of really great initiatives in Chicago, and this is going on uh, today and tomorrow at the UIC Forum Lots of really interesting guests presenting, lots of farmers involved, business people involved who are interested in social responsibility and sustainability. And uh, we have a couple of really good guests here today. Um, Jim Slam is on the phone with us. He's there at the Good Food Expo. He's on the floor somewhere. Uh, Jim, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having us. I'm glad to do so. Tell us the origin story of the Good Food Expo. Sure. Um Fourteen years ago, I realized that there wasn't much local sustainable food being sold in Chicago. You know, a couple of restaurants had it, a uh, little bit at Whole Foods, but other than that, most of the food was coming from far, far away, and not much of it was very sustainable. So uh, I realized, you know what, every industry needs a trade show, and there's not one uh, promoting local sustainable food, so why don't we launch one? Whole Foods became our partner, and, uh, you know, we had 50 farmers and tables at Kendall College, and 300 people showed up, and everybody's doing deals. It was great. And so slowly but surely, we've evolved it over time into uh, uh, the event we're now having at, at the UIC Forum today and tomorrow. And you've got dozens of speakers, and the UIC Forum is uniquely suited to um, having space for speakers and a big floor that you can um, deal in. So it sounds like it'll be an awesome time. No doubt about it. Uh, you know, today is trade, so you know, lots of conversations around trade, and you know, and people making deals with you know Chicago Public School and McCormick Place and and Whole Foods and lots of distributors and and lots of other supermarkets and restaurants. And then tomorrow's really a consumer festival. And so, you know, 180 vendors, all different types, so people can come and uh, meet uh, some new interesting purveyors of food, whether it be farmers or food artisans, uh, also some nonprofits that are, you know, advocates of good food. And then we have some of the best chefs in Chicago doing demos, Rick Bayless, uh, Jason Vincent, Sarah Grunberg is actually getting our Good Food Chef of the Year award. Uh, Andrew Zimmerman from Sepia, you know, a few others. So definitely have a great chef lineup. Uh, Michael Harlan Turkel is going to be doing a demo around vinegars and uh, fermentation, uh, and he'll be joined by Abe Conlon and Adrian Lowe from Fat Rice. Uh, that's a master class, wow. uh, <laughs> and so that's a pretty fun one. Yeah, uh, Fermentation's all the rage. Yeah. 
It's definitely a hot one. I, I think there, his book is something to do with acid trip, but it's a different kind of acid. <laughs> We're talking with Jim Slama, founder of the Good Food Expo. It's taking place today and tomorrow at the UIC Forum. Uh, one of the people who's presenting is Dr. Edwin McDonnell. He's assistant professor of medicine and associate director of adult clinical nutrition at the University of Chicago. He's a chef and panelist there at the Good Food Expo. Great to meet you. Oh, great to meet you. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, you started some interesting projects here. Tell us about Project Brotherhood. What's going on? So I did not start Project Brotherhood, but I was a participant when I was a medical student years, years ago. So Project Brotherhood is a clinic for uh, African-American men on the South Side. And when I was a medical student looking for mentorship, I came across the clinic and uh, they really took me in. So at that time, they were doing a project where they were training local barbers as health educators uh, to learn to basically teach the barbers to tell their clients about colon cancer. So I participated in that project, and that was one of the things that really planted the seed for me to have interest in becoming a gastroenterologist. So fundamentally, at the end of the day, I'm a trained gastroenterologist, so I do the colonoscopies, I do the upper endoscopies and everything. But I also uh, specialize in nutrition. So I see a lot of sick patients who need uh, alternative ways to feed themselves. And so these are people who have severe cancers, who may need to have feeding tubes and IV nutrition. And I also started our weight management clinic in the gastroenterology department. So I really just help people uh, try to meet their weight goals. And to do that, we have to talk about food. So I work with a couple of dietitians and myself trained in nutrition. We really encourage people to eat more vegetables and have a healthier lifestyle overall. What are the obstacles people face in getting good food? So that's one of the reasons why this conference is so important to have those conversations because, unfortunately, there are some obstacles. So cost is a major obstacle. So in my clinic, uh, I don't really have uh, an insurance requirement to some degree. So I try to see all comers. Um, and as a result, there are some people who uh, have some financial limitations in terms of getting, uh, getting access to good food. So I have to get creative and try to use some of the resources that we have. So learning more about local farming and urban farming is definitely uh, one way to make costs uh, a little bit lower, basically. But I also try to encourage people to think about where they're spending their money. So a lot of times people say good food is expensive, but they still are buying Coca-Cola and potato chips and foods that aren't free, but they don't really have any health benefits. So once people realize that they, if they went out without some of those foods, that shifts, they can shift money to other places to healthier food. Is that where the inspiration for uh, training yourself to become a chef? You went to Kendall College and you after becoming a doctor and already an MD degree going and tra getting that training for, uh, to become a chef too. Is that where the inspiration came from? So the inspiration really came from seeing a patient at the VA clinic. So when I was a resident, I had a clinic at uh, Jesse Brown VA, and I had one person who uh, had high blood pressure and diabetes, and he also had erectile dysfunction. And he came to my clinic stressed. Uh, he basically uh, had all these health issues and didn't really know what to do, and he was going through a divorce. And he was just eating hot dogs every day, every meal, because that's all he knew how to prepare, and his wife did all the cooking previously. So what I did was I shared with him a couple of recipes. I just showed him how to make roasted vegetables. So I told him, you know, get a bowl, put some olive oil, a little bit of salt and pepper, roast it 425, 15 minutes or so, and roast a variety of vegetables. So next thing you know, he started doing that. And he said, oh, the, the vegetables are delicious. It's good. <laughs> it's good. <laughs> um, and he started doing it all the time. So I 
had him grow his his you know vegetables to incorporating salads to making grain bowls. And the next thing you know, his blood pressure started getting better. Next thing you know, I didn't have to give him as much Viagra. Next thing you know, his diabetes and everything started getting better. His and, wife came back to him. Well, I don't know about all that. Uh, but he was healthier and he was happier. And that really triggered something to me. It, it really showed the power of food. And from that, I decided that I really need to go to culinary school and learn more about food because, unfortunately, in medical school, you really don't learn too much about nutrition and you definitely don't learn about about food and how to prepare food. So I realized that in order for me to be a better physician, I had to be a better cook. (laughs) It sounds like you're trying to translate – something uh, you're learning into better health care. In the African-American community, the health outcomes are so bad. They're so inordinately uh, lower life outcomes. Uh, All sorts of bad things are going on. Uh, Does – how do you – what kind of role can good food play? How do you get it in there to to change health outcomes? Yeah. So that is basically the field of culinary medicine. So right now there's a movement amongst physicians where we are trying to really incorporate cooking techniques and educating our patients. Uh, and not only educating patients, but also educating medical students. And so I'm one of the instructors for the culinary medicine class at the University of Chicago, where we teach nutrition within the context of cooking. So literally it's myself and a chef and some other physicians who we go into the uh, kitchen and teach medical students and also equip them with the language to translate what we're teaching them to patients. Now, as far as uh, health outcomes in the African-American community, it's important to point out, if you look at the United States compared to the global community, our health outcomes are in general bad. And a lot of it has to do with the standard American diet. So it is nutrition, cooking, healthy eating. It is a problem that affects a majority of Americans, uh, regardless if you live in urban communities or suburban communities. Uh, at the end of the day in America, our diet is not as healthy as it could be. It's really focused. We have too much of a focus on processed foods and too much of a focus on uh, a lot of calorie-dense foods. It's a calorie-dense diet at the end of the day. So we all have a responsibility to learn some more about nutrition and more about cooking, not only for ourselves, but also for our family members and friends. And it's good to see that over the past 10, 20 years or so, uh, society is changing where we're starting to realize that food is important. And I think the Good Food Expo is a good example of that. Like we weren't doing this, you know, back in the 1980s. So I remember going to the grocery store in the 1980s. The only lettuce you saw in the grocery store was iceberg and maybe romaine <laughs> if you you know went to a fancy grocery fancy store. Grocery store. Yeah. Uh, but now, I mean, there's a huge variety of things. And, and not only is there a variety, we're starting to have a variety of foods that come from uh, local farms. So, you know, 30, 40 years ago, we weren't talking about local farms like that. That wasn't part of the conversation. Uh, all the food was coming from foreign countries uh, and being shipped many, many miles just to get to the grocery store. And in that process, when food is being shipped, it also loses nutrients. Um, that's not really part of the conversation that people have, but it's a it's a true issue. The longer the food sits in the warehouse before it gets to before it gets to the grocery store, before it gets to your plate, uh, that food is losing some nutrients at the end of the day. Uh, all right, so we're doing a little better. It's good to remember that. Um, does that mean we're putting you out of business? Are we going <laughs> to knock all these colon cancers and stuff out of business because we're eating better? Put me out of business. <laughs> if if uh, if health if America becoming healthy puts me out of business, 
that's a good thing at the end of the day. I'll figure out something else to do. I'll do, you, just, do you think it's happening? Do you see like um, a n- decrease in what you're seeing usually? So uh, for colon cancer, uh, for people to, over the age of 50, that is decreasing. And some of that could be due to diet, but a lot of it has to do with colon cancer prevention or colon cancer screening. So that's doing more colonoscopy. But unfortunately, colon cancer on the age of 50 is actually increasing. Uh, so younger people are getting more colon cancer. Mm. And whether or not that has something to do with diet, it's hard to say, but more than likely it does. But globally, you were telling me that things are getting worse. You have studied this globally, like in places in China. They use, you said you have looked at the numbers uh, over there in the 80s and you compare it to what's going on right now. Industrialization and the rise of affluence is making these issues worse in China and so, other countries. So not only China, but also underdeveloped countries in general. So as more of these countries become more affluent and more westernized, they are picking up the bad habits that we have in America. And it's definitely leading to an increase in diabetes, high blood pressure. These are all diseases that we call diseases of affluence at the end of the day. So they are becoming more common globally um, in areas where previously they didn't really exist all that much. Dang. Well, <laughs> there's, there's good news and there's bad news on, on yeah. the good food uh, front. Well, the good news is people are more aware and more interested in how food affects their health. And we as physicians really have to uh, incorporate that awareness in our practice. Dr. Edwin McDonald is Assistant Professor of Medicine and Associate Director of Adult Clinical Nutrition at the University of Chicago. He's also a trained chef and a panelist at the Good Food Expo. It is taking place tomorrow for the uh, consumer world. And uh, one more thing. Uh, I also have a website called thedocskitchen.com where I talk about nutrition and healthy eating and uh, the latest research as far as nutrition. Thedocskitchen.com. Thanks a lot, uh, Dr. Edwin McDonald from the University of Chicago. And thanks to Jim Salama, the founder of Family Farm that brings uh, the Good Food Expo to this city every year for the last 14 years. Thanks very much for joining us, Jim Slama and Nari Safavi, one of the founders of the Pasfarda Arts and Cultural Exchange and our guide on Weekend Passport. Great to talk with you. Great to be here. Monday on Worldview, we'll talk about the assassination of the Afro-Brazilian councilwoman in Rio de Janeiro and the kind of crisis that's caused in that country. They have Black Lives Matter stickers and uh, signs up all over in Rio now, and we'll talk about that phenomenon Monday on Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Gal Lee Abdullah and Anna Waters for production assistance. Thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering, and thanks to Daniel Musisi for curating our music. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.